Good afternoon and welcome to this special public lecture co-sponsored by the Center for Comparative Immigration Studies and the Institute for International Comparative and Area Studies at UCSD and by the California Western School of Law. We meet today on the cusp of another great debate on immigration policy in the U.S. Congress, something that uh, seems to happen once every 10 or 20 years, usually with unfortunate results. Why we should be having a ferocious debate about how to restrict supposedly unwanted immigration at a time when the nation's economy is doing well and the demand for immigrant labor is at a modern-day peak, that's an interesting question, which we can perhaps explore uh, later this afternoon. Uh, we are having what economists would call a counter-cyclical debate over immigration policy. There's abundant evidence that general public opinion on immigration has become more restrictionist in the last five years. Even though there is widespread recognition that a large supply of immigrant labor is necessary to the functioning and the growth of the U.S. economy. The chattering class, media commentators, public intellectuals, and think tank researchers almost universally have adopted the notion that the U.S. system of immigration control is broken. But they often disagree on the most appropriate indicators of this dysfunctionality, and they tend to disagree on the fundamental issue of whether the system can be repaired, at least at a cost that most Americans would consider acceptable. The cost in terms of government spending, private sector disruption, economic growth, civil liberties, and human lives. Most politicians aren't waiting for the cost-benefit analysis to be done. They are plunging ahead with proposals to build 700 more miles of high-tech fencing along the U.S.-Mexico border, or in one version, to fence off the entire southwestern border from sea to sea. Proposals to make clandestine entry a felony and thereby exclude illegal entrants from any future program to legalize their status in this country, to make religious and other non-governmental organizations that provide basic human services uh, to immigrants regardless of their legal status subject to criminal prosecution, to deny U.S. citizenship to the U.S.-born children of undocumented immigrants, to deputize state and local governments to perform immigration enforcement functions, a mandatory system for verifying the employment eligibility of all immigrants, and a promised draconian crackdown on employers who tried to evade the system, and last but not least, dueling proposals for a guest worker program of some sort that in the President's formulation would match willing workers with willing employers. Meanwhile, illegal immigration to the United States is at an all-time high. 
up 24% in the past fiscal year. Despite a 300% increase in spending on immigration enforcement activities over the past decade, there is still no evidence that this massive buildup is deterring would-be illegal migrants from trying their luck. More than 500 undocumented migrants are dying every year in the effort to gain entry to our labor markets. In Mexico, the prospect of more heavy-handed U.S. border enforcement has elevated immigration to the status of the only issue that really matters in U.S.-Mexican relations. Today's speaker is ideally positioned to help us make sense of the current immigration reform debate. Mark Rosenblum is a political scientist trained here at UCSD who has specialized in the study of U.S. immigration policymaking. Among other works, he is the author of The Transnational Politics of U.S. Immigration Policy, published in 2004 by the Center for Comparative Immigration Studies. A member of the political science faculty at the University of New Orleans, Dr. Rosenblum is currently spending the academic year as an international affairs fellow of the Council of Foreign Relations and a visiting scholar at the Migration Policy Institute in Washington, D.C., where he has conducted extensive research on the feasibility of various types of programs to enforce immigration laws in the workplace. And starting next month, he will be working for the Immigration Subcommittee of the Senate Judiciary Committee, precisely where the immigration action will be in the new session of Congress. We welcome Mark Rosenblum back to UCSD, and we look forward to his insights. What I want to talk to you about today, uh, I'm going to begin um, by laying out a set of goals or benchmarks by which we can judge uh, sort of where we are and where we'd like to be. Um, And then I will sort of go over uh, what the status quo regime looks like uh, and sort of analyze, you know, what what flaws and what ways is the system broken. And then uh, I'll sort of summarize the reform proposals that are currently being debated in Congress. Um, And most of what I want to talk about today um, focuses on these last two questions. Um, First of all, could the system be repaired? Um, And what what would it take to to sort of get an immigration policy regime that that accomplishes the goals that we would like to see it accomplish? Uh, And to what extent do the current legislative proposals uh, promise to uh, provide those changes? And then secondly, will the system be repaired, or what are the prospects for um, getting, getting uh, uh, those appropriate reforms implemented? Um, so I think it's really important to start with um, to uh, sort of, as I said, uh, establish some benchmarks or, or think about what it is that we want immigration policy to accomplish. Um, and in the work that I'm doing at the Migration Policy Institute, um, I'm working uh, on a task force which includes several members of Congress and interest groups more or less from all sides of the immigration debate, excluding sort of the crazy uh, right-wingers, um, and, and a group of analysts. And, and really at the heart of, this, of the project that this task force is involved in is an effort to reframe the debate um, and to rethink you know, what it means to think about fixing a broken uh, system. Um, and in short, 
uh, I think the current debate is overwhelmingly focused on the problem of undocumented immigration. Um, and even people who talk about a new temporary worker program or a new guest worker program really only raise uh, a, a temporary worker program in the context of as a solution to the problem of undocumented immigration. Um, and I think that, that this sort of narrow focus really misses the forest for the trees. Um, and what we should be doing and what, what, as I said, one of the things that this task force is really um, focused on is um, thinking about the overall effects of immigration. Um, and I think they can be sort of roughly parsed or, or categorized within these three areas. There are economic effects, there are security effects, and there are social effects. Um, and it's important to realize, it's important for analysts and, and, uh, and, and for individuals who favor a more liberal immigration regime to be honest about the fact that in each of these areas, there are costs and benefits associated with immigration. There are economic costs and benefits, security costs and benefits, and social costs and benefits. Um, and we're interested in reframing the debate in terms of maximizing the benefits uh, on each of these dimensions and minimizing the costs. And, and I'll say more about, about that in a minute. But, but let me emphasize before I do that um, the way that I'm going to talk about immigration and, and sort of establish these goals is a very U.S.-centric focus, uh, a very U.S.-centric sort of way to think about immigration policy. So when I talk about reframing the debate, I'm not talking, for example, about viewing immigration from the perspective of the immigrant, which is also a perfectly you know, appropriate way to think about reframing the debate, but rather thinking about how to ensure that immigration policy um, works to sort of maximize the benefits of immigration for the United States. And it, it's a function of, of the work I'm doing and where I'm doing it. That, that, that's sort of how I'll be talking about it. Um, okay, so just to sort of briefly talk through um, sort of the goals of immigration policy on these three dimensions. Um, it's easy, I think, for um, uh, many of us um, to many of us who have analyzed dual labor markets and looked at the way immigrants become um, integrated within the U.S. economy to um, slip into the argument that immigrants and U.S. workers compete for different jobs and therefore uh, immigration is, is essentially a pure economic benefit. Immigrants promote growth without inflation. Um, so, you know, the goal of immigration policy should simply be to facilitate flows and to ensure that we're recruiting the best and the brightest innovative thinkers uh, because, because uh, you know, this is a, sort of a pure economic good. Um, but I think that, uh, you know, an honest debate does need to recognize that, you know, even where dual labor markets exist, sophisticated economic models recognize that there are at least sort of targeted negative wage effects, um, which we should seek to avoid. Um, and that uh, immigration does sort of change the incentive structure for native workers and for uh, U.S. employers and, and affect their investment decisions uh, in a way that may, in fact, depress wages and, and restructure the U.S. economy um, in significant ways. And um, I actually think that New Orleans represents a very interesting uh, accelerated microcosm of this process. And what we see going on there is a very complex relationship between immigration and policy choices and the incentives that employers and that native workers uh, confront in making their investment and employment decisions. Um, and, and these things really need to inform um, how we design policy to, to shape these economic effects. So the bottom line here is that 
immigration is a central feature of the U.S. labor market within the global economy. Uh, indeed, a majority of all new jobs created between 2000 and 2003 were held by immigrants. Um, so our policy choices, uh, from an economic perspective, need to ensure that the number and characteristics of immigrants um, are such that, that they maximize those economic benefits and make the most of that um, sort of economic resource. So a second sort of bundle of issues um, is immigration as it pertains to U.S. national security. Um, and here again, it's important to reframe the debate. On one hand, it's important to highlight or to, to recognize that immigration policy can play an important positive role in advancing U.S. security, uh, on one hand, by recruiting individuals who are able to contribute to U.S. strategic industries, um, but also as what I've referred to as a tool of, of U.S. foreign policy. Um, so in particular, um, immigration has the capacity to sort of strengthen linkages between the United States and its neighbors. Um, immigration could be linked to trade and other issues in a way uh, that, would, that would turn immigration into a positive tool of foreign policy. Um, and then a second sort of uh, reframing that we need to do surrounds the issue of border control and uh, the war on terror. Um, and here I think it's really important to draw distinctions, to, to understand what that relationship is, and to recognize that, um, that those are not synonymous terms, gaining control of the border and sort of winning the war on terror or preventing the entry of would-be terrorists. And I'll come back to that point in just a moment. Um, a third dimension uh, on which immigration policy, on which immigration matters, and on which policy um, should seek to influence outcomes is uh, what I'll broadly talk about as a social dimension. Um, and this is a really difficult uh, area for analysts and, and social scientists to, to sort of bring into uh, to bring into the discussion uh, because the issues that come up in this area are not very easily quantified. So for example, how do we value family reunification? Um, you know, it's a huge benefit to um, families, but it's not something that we can easily sort of quantify and, and think about, you know, the costs and benefits, or, the, or in that case, the benefits. Um, but I, I think even more important um, for our understanding of the policymaking process and for, and for establishing goals um, for immigration policy is to think about um, the the actual and perceived negative social consequences of immigration. Um, and in particular, um, uh, you know, on one hand, there are some real sort of social problems associated with low resource and undocumented immigration um, and, and how uh, especially low resource and undocumented immigrants are integrated into the United States. Um, and then there is this sort of more general perceived negative of cultural diversity, the whole sort of Samuel Huntington, you know, fear of Mexicanization or, or you know, whatever um, sort of language people use to describe it. Um, you know, uh, this is a very old theme in uh, U.S. immigration history, uh, and you saw many of the same arguments and, and cultural anxieties raised in the last great wave of immigration about Southern and Eastern Europeans. Um, so, so there is this sort of racial and, and um, demographic anxiety that's at play. But I think in the current climate, and, and Wayne was, was talking before about speculating about, about why there is so much 
uh, anti-cyclical opposition to immigration. Um, and I think that, that one of the things that's happening right now is that the problem of undocumented immigration in particular has become sort of a, um, has come to represent a much broader uh, threat to U.S. sovereignty and loss of control um, and breakdown of the social order um, in some of the same ways that uh, Vietnam War protests became a touchstone issue for social conservatives in the 1960s, undocumented immigration is coming to symbolize a much broader bundle of, of, of um, negative issues uh, on, on a um, sort of uh, social and, and, and an abstract social level. Um, and, and this, again, is something that we can think about addressing uh, through policy choices. So, um, so what does it mean to repair the broken policy regime um, in the context of these three dimensions? Um, well, let me first say one more thing. When we think about fixing uh, the, the broken regime or, or, or fixing U.S. immigration policy, um, it's important to bear in mind the complexity of the broader U.S. immigration system. Um, and this is something that, that Wayne has written extensively about. We live in a highly integrated global economy. Uh, we live at a point uh, in w- after which decades of previous immigration flows have been well-established uh, and, and established social networks and economic pushes and pulls. And all of these things together sharply limit our capacity to radically change uh, the level of, of immigration or, or, or even, um, well, to radically affect flow levels, certainly in the short term, um, and certainly at a reasonable cost, both in terms of enforcement costs, direct enforcement costs, and sort of the um, adjustment costs associated with the economic and social restructuring that would be associated with abruptly changing the, 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 the basic system that, 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 uh, you know, that, that now exists. Um, so when we think about reforming a, a broken system or, or repairing a broken system, what we're really talking about is how to structure flows um, and integrate flows in a way that maximizes the benefits of immigration and minimizes the costs on, on each of the dimensions that I just, that I just mentioned. Um, so you know, the real question is how we can think about maximizing benefits and minimizing costs efficiently. Um, and doing that uh, will involve some efforts uh, using U.S. policy to reshape or, or, or channel flows to sort of pick and choose and guide how flows take place, uh, which is easier than sort of abruptly um, cutting them off. Um, and some of it will involve adjusting U.S. policy to bring it more um, into harmony with this system which is now in place. So it's partly a question of trying to nudge the system and partly a question of adjusting the policies. But what we'd like to see is a greater fit between them. Um, And as we think about doing that, I think it's also quite important to sort of have a long-term vision and a real debate about what role immigration should play in the future. Um, And on one hand, uh, as we have that debate, um, we need to think about things like the declining U.S. birth rate and the growing dependence on immigrant labor, um, which is, you know, very much at the forefront of uh, the arguments put forward by uh, by business groups and and by, you know, most sort of economists who study this issue. Um, But we also need to be thinking about, you know, just to pick one example, about whether we want 20 years from now or 50 years from now for the U.S. agriculture industry to still be heavily reliant on low-skilled manual labor, you know, sort of at the center of how U.S. agriculture works. So, you know, having a vision for, um, for 
as I said, what role immigration should play in the future of the U.S. economy, and, and that should inform our, our sort of thinking about this reform process. In terms of economics and security and, and sort of social goals, we're not really getting the job done in terms of ensuring that, that we attract and integrate the immigrants that, that allow us to harness those, the, the, the benefits that are out there. So on an economic level, we see um, employers unable to efficiently recruit uh, certain types of immigrant labor, um, very long backlogs for employment visas, um, a deeply flawed regulatory environment, which is a real um, obstacle to the efficient incorporation of immigrant workers. Um, this is especially true or increasingly true at the level of the highest skilled um, uh, workers and students. Um, the United States historically has enjoyed a great advantage um, in attracting students and, and very high-skilled workers. And if we're not losing that race, we're certainly losing our lead in that race. And I can talk more about that um, in the Q&A. Um, and then, uh, so, so that's a, a failure that has both economic and security implications. And then uh, a third failure is on the social level where long family backlogs are, are clearly an indicator of an inability to deliver on the promise of, of family reunification. Uh, some immigrants who are legally entitled to come to the United States wait 20, actually the current waiting list is 22 years for siblings who are legally entitled to an LPR visa, but um, you know, uh, not actually able to get one. Uh, a second piece of this failure to employ immigration as a tool of foreign policy um, is the dramatic failure to link immigration to other issue areas. So, for example, it would be natural for the United States and Mexico or for the United States and, and the broader group of, of Caribbean Basin states to incorporate immigration within a NAFTA or CAFTA framework um, as, as part of a broader project of regional economic integration. Um, but there is almost an active, there is, I would say, an active refusal to, 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 to do so and a rejection of overtures by um, those countries to do so. Um, and it fits very much within a broader image that is coming to dominate uh, sort of the analysis of the United States in Latin America, that the United States is unilateralist and hypocritical in its, in its, in, and, and the, the mistreatment of immigrants um, and sort of the criminalization of immigration um, fits within this broader um, understanding of, of U.S. hostility and indifference towards Latin America. Um, so, so I think this is a great um, failure to take advantage of this opportunity. Um, and then there are sort of the negative, uh, you know, this is an absence of positive benefits from immigration. There's also sort of the clear negatives, the border fence, the deaths at the border, the recent shooting at the border, um, again, the criminalization of immigration. I mean, these things are, um, are sort of uh, even more uh, dramatic failures in this regard. And then uh, the third sort of major problem in the current system is the inability to control undocumented immigration. Um, I don't need to tell you all about the failures at the, the southern border, um, but the admission of a half million undocumented immigrants each year um, is clearly not a good thing. Even though undocumented immigrants have jobs and contribute, the admission of undocumented immigrants as opposed to legal immigrants is clearly not a good thing for the U.S. economy. Uh, it's also quite problematic as a security issue and, and, and contributing to this social anxiety that I mentioned before. Um, but I think it's quite important um, to distinguish between gaining control of the U.S.-Mexican border and fighting terrorism. So let me just say something about, about this. Um, when we think about 
terrorism and its relationship to, to the U.S.-Mexican border because, um, you know, at least in Washington, we, we often hear those things mentioned together. Um, when we talk about putting more um, border enforcement, more officers on the border as a way to, to, um, to, to prevent the entry of terrorists, we can, you know, if you think about the needle in a haystack analogy, this is like um, having more hands or more eyes sifting through the haystack to look for that needle. Um, but, uh, you know, we've got a 5,000-mile U.S.-Canadian border and whatever it is, 8,000 miles of unprotected coastline. And what, what is a greater priority, um, according to most analysts who look at, at terrorism, is to think about not just looking in that one haystack, but looking throughout the field uh, or at all the other haystacks that are out there. So we need to be thinking more about all these other borders and all these other points of entry. And then a third tool, which is probably even more important, is to try to get a little more insight into what the needle actually looks like uh, and, and, and get some intelligence about where that needle is likely to be hidden. And in order to do that, what we need to be doing is going beyond the border um, and, and doing things like looking at terrorist mobility networks outside the United States um, and, and using that intelligence and, and sharing that intelligence with, with, um, with uh, the immigration, uh, with with enforcement agents at the points of entry. And this is the real missing piece, which really has nothing to do with how many people or, or what kinds of fences we have at the southern border. Um, so so this, is, this is quite a dramatic problem, which doesn't directly fall within immigration policy, but, but certainly connects to it. Um, and then a third point, which really bears emphasis, is the failure in the interior. Uh, and by that, I mean the presence of roughly 11 million undocumented immigrants already within the United States. Um, and again, on all three of the dimensions that I've been talking about, economic, social, and security, um, having large, a large undocumented population in the United States is not the optimal way to take advantage of, of the resource that immigration represents. Um, so uh, so this, is, this is something that, you know, whatever our reform efforts are, they ought to, some, a point that they want to address. Okay, so what are our reform efforts? I'm going to really focus, um, given that, that uh, I'm parachuting in from Washington, I'm going to really focus on the proposals that are currently being discussed there. Um, so uh, I'm, really, I'm going to restrict my talk to, to these five. H.R. Uh, 4437 is the bill that the House of Representatives passed in December, uh, the Sensenbrenner bill, which Wayne already uh, spoke to you about. Well, most of what Wayne talked about was, was uh, features of this Sensenbrenner bill. Um, the president's proposal has not really been fleshed out, uh, but what we know about it, I'll, I'll mention. Um, there are three Senate bills, uh, one introduced by Senators John Cornyn and John Kyle, uh, 1438, uh, and then one introduced by Senators uh, McCain and Kennedy, and then a bundle of bills introduced by Senator Chuck Hagel, um, and I will tell you more about all of them right now. Um, so all of these bills um, would do two main things. They would increase border enforcement, or at least study new strategies for increasing border enforcement, and they would increase worksite enforcement through some form of mandatory electronic verification, uh, a universal version of the basic pilot that already exists, um, and through stiffer penalties on employers for noncompliance. There's a pretty, I think, universal consensus that even if you would like to see more legal flows, that, that, that it's going to happen in the context of increased enforcement at the border and the work site, and that, that that's important for um, regularizing um, the flows that exist. Um, 
So beyond these similarities, what we see are really three different schools of thought uh, in, in the, the five proposals that I just mentioned, um, which I will refer to this way. Um, and the Sensenbrenner Bill is very much the enforcement-only approach. Uh, it is an impressively exhaustive list of, of almost everything you can think of to make undocumented immigration more difficult and to make the conditions under which undocumented immigrants live in the United States more difficult. Uh, and Wayne mentioned several of the things that this bill would do. Um, I, we can talk more about it during the Q&A. Um, but uh, it's really like if you can think of anything that would make it hard to be an illegal immigrant or an undocumented immigrant in the United States, it's included in this bill. Uh, it's a real uh, broad-based assault on undocumented immigration. Um, what's different about um, comprehensive, uh, what I'm referring to as comprehensive approaches as distinct from enforcement-only approaches, is that the comprehensive approaches, well, first of all, all of the comprehensive approaches are a bit less Exhaustive in their assault on undocumented immigrants, um, but but the the other distinction is that all of them would would, in combination with increased enforcement, would also um, include some new legal avenues uh, to allow immigrants to enter the United States, um, and. Among the proposals that include new legal opportunities for immigration, there's a distinction between the Bush and Corn and Kyle approach, which does it strictly through a temporary worker program and the McCain-Kennedy and Hegel approach, which combines a new temporary worker program with, a path to, with paths to legal permanent residency for, for, for some temporary immigrants, as well as new uh, legal permanent immigration and earned legalization for um, undocumented immigrants already in the United States. So that's really what is at the heart of the, of the, the five main proposals that are being debated. Um, so let's think now about you know, the extent to which those proposals address the problems that we've identified. Um, and, and to the extent that they don't, how we could address those problems. And as I said, I'm going to really focus a lot on this issue of positive recruitment goals. So I've talked about three different types of, of recruitment goals that we should be trying to sort of positively pursue. Obviously, um, the enforcement-only bill, the Sensenbrenner bill, doesn't deal with any of these. Um, the Bush and the Corn and Kyle bill uh, are strictly focused on labor admissions, low-skilled labor admissions, and they strictly uh, address uh, the, the problem of, of insufficient labor uh, through a proposed temporary worker program. Um, the uh, McCain-Kennedy and the Hagel bills um, also would have a temporary worker program. They're, distinct, they're, they're, they're different from the Bush and Corn and Kyle approach, as I said, because their temporary workers would have the opportunity to become legal permanent residents, um, the, the McCain-Kennedy bill, 1033, would also increase family admissions to address this problem of backlogs, uh, and the Hagel bill would also target students and H-1B high-skilled workers uh, for more um, to, to facilitate their entry and their ultimate um, uh, adjustment to legal permanent status. So it tries to get at this sort of recruitment of the best and brightest. Um, so, um, so how do we choose... Um, how do we choose among these different proposals? I mean, I've sort of dismissed, uh, or I haven't dismissed, but I mean, I've, I've observed that, that the Sensenbrenner bill, um, not only does it not um, sort of pursue 
the, the positive recruitment of immigrants and, and fail to address that, um, you know, the, the inability to recruit immigrants. But most of its supporters would reject that terminology, the idea that there's insufficient recruitment. They would reject that terminology out of hand. Um, so, you know, I think it's important to evaluate the claim that more recruitment is beneficial to the United States, or and 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 you know, make sure that we're that we don't agree with Sensenbrenner that the real problem is that there's too many immigrants coming. Um, so, you know, in order to have that discussion, I mean, this is probably an audience that I don't need to convince of that necessarily, but um, in order to have that that broader discussion, um, these are quest- these questions require us again to think in terms of economic and and social and security. Um, costs and benefits of migration, and to use this framework to try to think about what is the proper level of flows, how many immigrants ought we to be admitting, and uh, how should we select them? To whom should scarce visas be distributed? Um, so this is, uh, you know, I mean, this is actually quite a difficult question, um, thinking about the ideal level, sort of the optimal level of flows and the optimal distribution of, vis- of visas. Um, so, uh, as I said, I'm going to sort of think it through on each of these three dimensions, um, beginning with the economic dimension. Um, and uh, there's a raging debate, as I think most of you know, about sort of the economic uh, trade-off between growth and equity. You know, there's this sort of assumption, you know, in, in broad outline, that immigrants promote growth, but they depress <coughs> wages. Um, and it's quite difficult to pinpoint the tipping point at which you know, that the, the growth benefits are outweighed by, by the, 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 the wage losses. Um, speaking in broad outline, I know not everybody would accept that, 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 that general trade-off, um, but, but bear with me. Um, so, uh, but, so, so I'm going to tell you that it's not possible to pinpoint an exact tipping point um, a second observation I want to make is that when we talk about changing the level of inflows, I mean, even if, you, even if we start with the idea that it's not possible to pinpoint a tipping point, um, it's important to realize that when we talk about changing the level of inflows, we need to discuss it in the context of the cost of enforcement and the adjustment costs that we mentioned before so that any consideration of radical reductions in immigration um, especially in light of sort of changing demographics and, and increasing demand for immigrant labor um, are, are going to be quite difficult to, to think about. So, you know, even if, uh, if we're unsure about the pre- precise tipping point, uh, it's unlikely that it's going to be cost-effective to radically reduce inflows. Um, so these are sort of starting points for thinking about economic effects. When we think about how visas should be distributed, that's actually a much easier question. We know that legal immigrants are more economically beneficial than undocumented immigrants because they're more likely to pay taxes, they're less likely to be exploited. Uh, We also know that skilled immigrants are of greater economic benefit than unskilled immigrants, regardless of what kind of work they do, because they're more likely to sort of move up the economic ladder and be entrepreneurial uh, and and be a resource that, um, that the U.S. economy benefits from. We can make a similar set of points about um, security considerations. There is a general trade-off between the diplomatic benefits of openness and the security risks of openness. It's difficult to pinpoint an uh, an exact tipping point at at, at which this this trade-off shifts one way or the other. But we know, again, that there are enormous security benefits to ensuring that immigrants who are here are here in legal status. Um, and there are great security benefits to maximizing the skill level and in particular to ensuring that, that we get as many of these sort of best and brightest workers, especially in strategic industries, as we can. 
Um, and finally, uh, you know, thinking again about sort of social considerations, I think this is really where much of the actual policy debate, much of what the underlying context of the policy debate is about. And here, there are fundamentally sort of irreconcilable, irreconcilable differences of opinion and no real way to quantify, on one hand, the value of family reunification and on the other hand, either the value or the cost of cultural diversity. Um, but even, so, so you know, uh, this is just something that, that um, is sort of purely subjective um, but, but while acknowledging that, that much of this social sort of dimension is purely subjective, it's also important to, to emphasize that there are some more or less objective benefits of family-based migration because family-based immigrants have built-in networks that they can take advantage of. Uh, and you know, th- there's all kinds of things that we know about how families provide uh, immigrants with more resources to become integrated and to become sort of economically successful in the United States. So as a first cut at thinking about how many visas and to whom they should be distributed, um, what we can say is that you know, any radical reduction in flows is going to be uh, costly. Um, and it's easier to talk about the skill level or about the selection criteria. We know that we want to raise the skill level of immigrants. We know that we want to limit undocumented immigration. We know that we want to promote family reunification. And I would rate those roughly in that order of importance. Um, and then uh, when we think about the ideal level of flows, it really depends very much on these selection criteria. To the extent that, that immigration is consistent with these guidelines, then more is going to be better. And to the extent that it's inconsistent with those guidelines, then our ideal level is going to be a little bit lower. Okay, so uh, I want to raise one more point on these sort of positive recruitment goals and, and sort of the legal immigration regime. Um, and this is uh, a question about the terms of admission. So in addition to thinking about how many immigrants and what kinds of immigrants, I want to talk to you about uh, how long they should come here for uh, and the difference between legal permanent residency and, and coming as a non-immigrant. Um, and right now, um, what this table wants to show you is that the system is really quite unbalanced that um, you know, we see roughly equal numbers of, of legal permanent residents and non-immigrants coming each year, uh, but the overwhelming majority of legal permanent residents come as family-based migrants um, and, and secondarily as humanitarian migrants, and employment-based LPR immigration is you know, almost nothing. Um, and the overwhelming majority of non-immigrants come on the basis of their job skills or as employment-based immigrants. So this is actually part of a long-term trend. I don't know, it's kind of a difficult picture to see, but maybe y'all can make it out. But what this picture shows, the blue lines are non-immigrant admissions each year. The red lines are LPR, permanent immigrants. And what we see is that non-immigrant admissions started out much lower in 1965. We didn't have very many of them. It's climbed much faster so that now a majority of all immigration is is temporary, non-immigrant immigration. Um, and the hashed part of each line is um, the labor-based uh, immigrants, skills-based immigrants, and the, uh, and the solid part is, is, is the rest. So what you see is you know, very little uh, uh, employment-based LPR immigration, lots of employment-based non-immigrant immigration, and this is part of a trend uh, which has been increasing over time. Um, so, so what do we make of that? Um, well, non-immigrant flows, I mean, this is actually not a very surprising trend. Non-immigrant flows are quite attractive uh, on the surface 
as a strategy to get the labor, the economic benefits of immigration without the social costs or the potential economic costs. Um, uh, so, so this is why that trend has been taking place. But, um, but in fact, uh, legal permanent resident migration, especially if it comes with integration, um, actually offers far greater social and economic and security benefits than does non-immigrant immigration, um, temporary immigration. And, and basically the reason is, is because immigrants make more money over time and pay more taxes over time and become more productive members of society over time. Um, so, so in principle, we would prefer uh, LPR immigration to non-immigrant immigration. And this is especially true because enforcing temporary migration, enforcing the re- return migration, is quite costly And in order to do it effectively, uh, the only way we can enforce return migration is to impose very difficult exploitative conditions to take away non-immigrants' rights at the workplace and and in society. Um, So, uh, and even with those sort of enforcement tools in place, what we see is that it's incomplete. And where you have temporary worker programs and non-immigrant migration regimes, you also have a lot of visa overstays, usually between one-third and one-half. Uh, in the case of, of guest worker programs. So, um, so this is actually quite an alarming trend. Um, we can also talk about, well, uh, I won't say what we can also talk about because I'm sure I'm going to not have time to finish all my talk anyway. Um, okay, so, um, so where do we stand in terms of the legislative proposals that are out there and how well they improve our ability to recruit and retrain uh, immigrants in a way that advances U.S. interests? Um, well, the Sensenbrenner bill, if successful, um, if, if completely implemented, would represent a radical reduction. I mean, would, would, I think, be quite effective in reducing immigration flows and stocks in the long run. Um, you know, to actually implement the Sensenbrenner bill would be enormously costly uh, and enormously disruptive and require massive um, adjustments to the U.S. economy. It's, it's quite difficult to imagine it ever being sort of fully put in place, but we could sort of talk that through later. Um, but but um, really, I want to focus on the other two options. Um, the, uh, the Bush and the Corn and Kyle sort of true guest worker program, a temporary worker program, is really quite an imperfect solution, um, which, is, which is fairly certain to create new problems in the future once, uh, you know, once people's um, uh, temporary work contracts expire and or uh, create problems in its implementation by, by making the terms of non-immigrant labor um, unattractive. Um, so if we're really looking at, at these three proposals that are out there, the only one that's really very attractive um, is the McCain-Kennedy and the Hegel approach, which treats t- a temporary worker program as transitional visas. That is, that uh, you, you enter as a non-immigrant, um, but you have a clear path to LPR status, to transitioning from non-immigrant to LPR status. Um, and in fact, uh, our task force um, is going to make the more general uh, recommendation that all non-immigrant visas should be um, explicitly structured as transitional visas in this way. Uh, currently, about half of all non-immigrant visas include uh, some capacity to eventually adjust to LPR status, but in almost all cases, that adjustment is expensive and requires you to hire a lawyer uh, and is a a highly uncertain process and we would like to see that process streamlined and move more to a system of transitional visas rather than than temporary visas. Um, We're also going to recommend the establishment of an independent board, you know, roughly modeled on the Fed, um, which would establish 
annual quotas and 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 seek to sort of target you know to, to look for these uh, optimal levels um, on the basis of you know, sort of the supply and demand for immigrant labor, among other things, uh, rather than waiting every 10 or 20 years for Congress to debate this in a highly charged political atmosphere because we're skeptical that Congress gets the numbers right. Um, and, and a third recommendation, uh, which is probably not going to make it into our task force report, but, but which I'll mention anyway because it's what I, I think is important, would be to restructure family migration. Uh, and I haven't talked very much about this, but uh, the short point here is that extended family migration uh, is inherently prone to the kinds of backlogs that I described before because of the process of chain migration. When you bring in, when, when, when you allow migration by siblings and adult married children of immigrants, um, those immigrants come in with networks of their own, and this is where these, these very long backlogs come from. So what the Jordan, the Commission on Immigration Reform, recommended in 1994 was simply eliminating uh, visas for extended families. What I, what I hope that, that our task force will recommend is to make all migration modeled on employment-based visas. The way employment-based based LPR visas work now is that when an immigrant gets a visa, it automatically comes with um, admission for his or her spouse and children. Um, so the whole sort of second preference family migration uh, category would cease to exist and all immigrant visas would be uh, with the nuclear family as sort of the unit of analysis instead of the individual. And I think that that's actually a really nice way to finesse this problem um, and, and promote family migration rather than individual migration. So very briefly then, um, let me say something about the other two sort of broad failures that I talked about. The failure to employ immigration as a tool of foreign policy. Obviously the Sensenbrenner bill adds fuel to the fire. Um, the Bush and Corn and Kyle approaches. A temporary worker program would appear to be popular, but you know this absence of, of LPR reform and a path to legalization is problematic. And the Corn and Kyle bill is actually quite problematic because it models uh, participation in a temporary worker program on the drug certification. Countries would have to qualify by proving that they're allies in the war on immigrants, essentially, um, in order to qualify for this guest worker program. So I actually would not call this uh, uh, you know, a positive step in this regard. Um, the other two programs have more attractive uh, temporary worker proposals, um, and the McCain-Kennedy bill in particular uh, promotes investment in Mexico and sort of some, some targeted um, cooperative approaches. Um, we're also going to talk about recommending that countries of origin play a role in temporary worker oversight, uh, perhaps, and, and we may, we may I, I would like to see us talk about targeting Mexico and the Caribbean Basin for additional visas. I'm not sure if that'll make it into our report. Um, and then finally, uh, you know, most of the debate has talked about undocumented immigration. Uh, I have a paper that I put back at the back of the room that, that looks at uh, worksite enforcement in particular because we certainly think that that, that is a missing piece of a, of a more um, regulated and, and, and um, uh, well, a more regulated immigration system. Um, none of these proposals give much thought to um, tracking terrorist mobility that I, that I mentioned before, um, uh, and none of them none of them get it fully right on employer sanctions, and you can see my other paper on that. Um, and, and of course, expanding legal access would would make the cost of enforcement more realistic. Um, and then the, the one other sort of sort of uh, thing that I, I do want to say something about is um, uh, the issue of undocumented immigrants already within the United States. 
the enforcement-only approach, the Sensenbrenner approach, would seek to drive immigrants out by uh, sort of making their lives more difficult and making it more difficult for people to interact with them. Uh, a particularly noteworthy thing in the Sensenbrenner approach is retroactive mandatory verification where, they would, where uh, the bill would call for employers to, to check on the uh, employment eligibility of everybody already at the work site, uh, even if they hired them 20 years ago. Um, the, the Bush and um, Corn and Kyle bills have what I refer to as report and deport provisions. And what I mean by that is those bills ask immigrants to come and register uh, either as temporary workers in the Bush program or in this mandatory deferred departure uh, in the Corn and Kyle proposal. And in both cases, they would get uh, short-term um, legal uh, work access in the United States, but, but uh, in the long run would have to leave the country. So it's quite questionable whether they would um, be uh, successful. Um, which brings us to legalization, which is how McCain, Kennedy, and Hegel would address the problem. And I think it's important to recognize that, that legalization is a truly imperfect solution I think, undoubtedly, legalization does promote uh, future flows. It encourages people to come illegally. And it does reward individuals who broke the law to enter. But it is simply the least bad alternative. Um, it is the only way to get 11 million undocumented immigrants out of uh, undocumented status and into legal status. And, and there's, uh, you know, it's, it's absurd to stand on principle um, you know, uh, on, on the grounds of not rewarding lawbreakers when there's so much to gain from getting people into legal status. So, um, so here's the scorecard. <laughs> um, I've talked about sort of 13 different little pieces of what I think we need to do to get the system repaired. Um, there's only three of them that are really part of the mainstream debate right now, strengthening border enforcement, uh, imposing uh, stronger employer sanctions, and a, a guest worker program, a temporary worker program. Um, I've put several of them in bold. Those are things that are being talked about but there's no consensus. What this, what this table does is it gives a zero if it's not part of the proposal, and then a negative score if it makes things worse, and a positive score if it would you know, address the, the, the problem in a productive way. And the ones and twos are just relative for more or less uh, you know, promising approach. Um, so you know, in, in a few minutes, what's going to happen? Um, will we get uh, some of this legislation passed? Um, I'm going to um, just not talk about previous reform scenarios and instead talk about the current context. But if I were going to talk about previous reform scenarios, those are the ones I would say something about. Um, and what I would say about them is that we've seen restrictionist reforms passed in the past in response to uh, rising popular attention to undocumented immigration and alarm about undocumented immigration, anxiety about sort of demographic shifts and, and, sort of, and these social issues that I've been talking about. Um, and we've also seen it passed as immigration becomes an issue in local electoral politics at the turn of the century and in the 1980s, uh, in the 1990s more than the 1980s. Um, and we've seen pro-immigration reforms in the past in response to interest group demands for more labor, um, uh, and especially when there's real concerns about labor availability, as there was um, in uh, the beginning of World War II um, and in, and in 1990s at the beginning of the tech boom. Um, we see some of both of those things going on right now. As Wayne mentioned, uh, there really is, I think, unprecedented uh, popular restrictionism and sense of urgency. I mean, the number that really jumps out at me is this, the, the second bullet point there, that 7% of respondents to an NBC Wall Street Journal poll identified immigration as the highest priority for the federal government. 
I mean, I've been looking at, at, at immigration poll data, and I have never seen that number above like 1% or 2% ever. And 7% is really quite astonishing. And I realize it's, it's still only 7%, but it's certainly unprecedented for immigration. And these other numbers, you know, that 37% think immigrants help the economy versus uh, 53% who believe it, they hurt the economy, those numbers are as bad as you've ever seen them. Uh, there's much more support for tougher enforcement than there is for legalization. Um, the one sort of uh, uh, outlier, or the only issue that's, that's not solidly restrictionist is that there is increasing support for a guest worker program. Um, that those numbers are trending up. Um, but you know, at the same time that we see un- unprecedented popular restrictionism, as Wayne mentioned, we see uh, increasing consensus among the chattering class uh, and among um, you know, uh, interest group leaders um, that, that there is a real problem, uh, this, that, that there is a real demographic crunch and a real dependence on immigrant labor um, and genuine concern looking into the future about labor availability. And I think the bottom line is that, as someone like Mark Krikorian will tell you, there is a huge gap between elite and popular attitudes on immigration. Okay, so, so the one other point that, you know, in, in terms of this uh, difference between uh, popular attitudes and, and interest group um, attitudes, the other sort of uh, context in which that, that, that or, or the other contextual issue that's going on right now is that there's a real shift. Traditionally, immigration has been characterized by cross-cutting cleavages uh, where uh, businesses and, and, and liberals were allied against unions and social conservatives. Um, and that... that classic cross-cutting cleavage and lack of partisanship really began to erode in the 1990s. We saw rising partisanship where immigration began to look more like a Republicans versus Democrats issue, especially as unions have increasingly favored integration rather than prohibition on immigration. Um, and as Latinos have become you know, this big sort of uh, swing vote, 800-pound gorilla in, in the debate. Um, so what we see is... is sort of rather than cross-cutting cleavages and, and a lack of partisanship, the, the main feature is this divide within the Republican Party between traditional sort of pro-business Republicans versus social conservative Republicans. Um, and Bush is really sort of right in the middle of that. Um, but the Democrats are not unified in support of immigration. And on the House bill, the Sensenbrenner bill, the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee whipped its members in vulnerable districts to have them support this bill. Um, because it didn't want to see them vulnerable to being soft on immigration. And this issue of defining immigration as crime control and anti-terrorism really um, immobilizes uh, Democrats on the issue. Um, So in terms of reform scenarios, with the 10 seconds I have left, um, traditionally... Presidential leadership has been very important for getting comprehensive, for getting you know, major immigration bills passed. Um, that seems quite unlikely. The Bush's position is so weak, and his immigration numbers in particular are quite bad, and he's so um, out of touch with uh, the hardliners in his, po- in his party that it's difficult to see him uh, exercising leadership. Um, so I think certainly the most likely outcome is that the House has already passed a bill. The most likely outcome is that the Senate is going to pass a bill which includes a temporary worker program and that those two bills aren't going to be reconciled. Um, you know, that's the 90% most likely outcome. But, but um, there's, there's two possibilities that we should also be uh, alert to. And one is that uh, Bill Frist, the Senate Majority Leader, has been telling lots of people 
that he wants to bring uh, a bill uh, that, that Arlen Specter is going to introduce directly to the floor without uh, any hearings. Um, and um, the Specter bill would include a temporary worker program, but bringing it directly to the floor uh, would allow for amendments and would sort of um, you know, uh, be a real wild card. And you might end up with some version, you know, some of Sensenbrenner's stuff, uh, that gets passed by the Senate, so you could see some kind of a conference committee, uh, and and this is a real possibility that if you bypass hearings. Uh, and the other possibility is the real ID scenario, in which you know you have some late night um, backroom uh, decision to pass uh, to pass legislation uh, without any debate. Uh, and this is you know this is becoming a dominant theme among the Republican leadership. So you you know uh, this is another way we could see something happen, but. Um, that's where we are.